finding that a fair number of you are not that familiar with uh, Anapanasati um, or choiceless awareness. So what I'd like to do this evening is uh, give you a bit of a framework uh, for understanding uh, what we're doing and perhaps that will give your practice a little bit more meaning um, when you s- start to understand what we've been doing, what we're doing now, and um, <clears throat> why we do it, where it goes. Basically, there are two ways to teach, two main ways of teaching. Anapanasati means the full awareness of breathing. That's one translation. It's also been translated as mindfulness with breathing. Uh, Both English terms are difficult. uh, They're somewhat inadequate. But clearly, you understand that it has to do with mindfulness and it has to do with breathing. It comes from a sermon that the Buddha gave. And its basic outline is identical with what is called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is, you could say, the declaration of independence of Vipassana practitioners. It's kind of a yogic manual as to how to practice. Everyone who teaches at this center is drawing upon that sutra in one way or another. It's called the Four Foundations of of Mindfulness. Anapanasati is simply the four, a streamlined version of the four foundations of mindfulness using the breath throughout to fully develop and mature these four foundations of mindfulness. So uh, that's basically what's in the background. That's been the blueprint of what we're, how we're moving in terms of the unfolding of the retreat. There are two main ways of teaching uh, Anapanasati. One is the classical way, where uh, you work with 16 contemplations. There are four sets of four. They're called the four tetrads, which correspond to the four foundations of mindfulness. In this, uh, you move through each contemplation. Uh, Clearly, it's not ideally set up for the modern world because uh, you have to have a a lot of time and also interest in taking up each contemplation with a certain precision. There's some value to it, definitely. But there's another way, and that's the way we're teaching, which is called the condensed method. In Thailand, it's sometimes referred to as the Uh, condensed method which (laughs) which actually as I hope you'll see certainly before the retreat is over that it covers all the 16 so you're not getting gypped it's not um, fast food uh, vipassana well you know it isn't because you know how hard you're working 
Um, and then you, you've heard the term choiceless awareness. In the condensed method, there, the 16 are really two. They're reduced to two. One is to use the breathing to calm, concentrate, steady, clarify the mind. And two, to then take that mind that is now more fit to look deeply and apply it uh, to these uh, foundations of mindfulness, which I'll go into. Uh, in order to see <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the true nature of basically the mind-body process. The first three days or so, we've been working on calming and concentrating the mind. And whether you know it or not, from uh, since we started the choiceless awareness, uh, we've been including all 16. That is, they're potentially there. They're not necessarily there. As your practice unfolds, those steps become manifest. When we use a term like choiceless awareness, which uh, points to choicelessness in two ways. One, um, we have no agenda. That is, we're open to whatever turns up and a large part of what we're learning is how to stay open. And the other meaning of choicelessness is non-judgmental. We're not for or against what turns up. Well, to understand even that, the choicelessness, perhaps it would be helpful to understand uh, what choices are made. In other words, most of the other meditations are very definite, specific contemplations where you do choose. Certainly we know the one with the breath, but all the other 16 are specific contemplations which delimit the range of attention. They suggest what to attend to. Many of them can't be attended to until they arise naturally in your practice. For example, uh, you can't attend to rapture, which is a, a deep and um, a deep state that comes out of a concentrated mind until the mind gets sufficiently concentrated so that rapture emerges. Otherwise, you would be contemplating an idea or a fantasy. Okay. Um, if we start at the beginning, I'm obviously not going to go through all 16, but I, I want to give you a, a feeling of it so that then when we come to the choiceless awareness, you understand what you're doing. Mindfulness of breathing. Full awareness of breathing, whichever one you entitle it. First off, we have to get clear on what is mindfulness. And probably everyone in this room has a good sense of what it is. You probably have read books on it and intuitively know what it is. But let me emphasize um, what it is we're learning, because to really be mindful is, is a kind of refinement of, of attention which uh, perhaps is endless. That is, the refinement of this capacity to observe, to pay attention, is like any, perhaps any art form. It's, uh, there's so much room for refinement 
uh, as you learn how to attend. The first uh, realm, which corresponds to the first foundation of mindfulness, is the body. So that uh, we would be mindful of the body in Anapanasati, and those are four contemplations. I'm just going to fuse them and just talk about the body. In it, uh, we begin by contemplating the breath itself, which is part of the body. Then as we go on, and of course that starts on day one, you can't help but get to know your body a little bit better. Haven't you had much more contact with your body being here? You know, just know it, just the discomfort alone reminds you that you, <laughs> that you have a body. It's telling you in no uncertain terms. Okay, in the Buddha's uh, teaching on Satipatthana, he talks about being mindful of the body in the body, which is an unusual use of the English language. And there are, of course, many different interpretations of what was meant. Uh, my own feeling is its most important meaning is the intimate and direct contact with what we call body. It's the real body. It's not body image. Body image is mind. So the body in the body is when the attention is on the, the raw uh, essence of being embodied. It has nothing at all to do with uh, images of the body, ideas of the body, and so forth. So in this contemplation, uh, you, if you're doing it, you certainly become, it's uh, of the utmost importance to become clear uh, when, you, when you are really attending to just the body and get to know how the mind encroaches upon that and can lead you to conclude that you're attending to the body, but you're really, uh, at least to some degree, being mindful of the mind. The mind and the body kind of an admixture of the two. Mindfulness, as used by the Buddha, has a number of characteristics which might help you. You're already doing it and you've heard this, but um, it's very important for us all to be clear on this. One, mindfulness is non-conceptual. It has nothing at all to do with thinking. It's free of all ideas and concepts. That's why it's so precious. It's like a clear mirror. So it's not for or against anything. A mirror is not for or against anything. Its only job is to reflect what's there. And so real mindfulness is free of thinking. It's free of I like, I don't like. It can only happen in the present tense. There's no other place for it to happen. It's now, otherwise it would be remembering. Now you can be mindful of remembering, but mindfulness itself uh, has that striking, uh, it's sometimes called bare attention. And I like the term intimacy, because to me the whole practice is about intimacy. So that we would be learning how to be intimate with the body. Intimacy, as I'm using it, um, 
is something like this. Think of raw food. Let's say food, um, and don't get caught up in the health and you know all the different diets and all that for the moment. Uh, raw food, there it is. Let's say a carrot or a potato. Uh, and typically we take these raw, let's say, vegetables for the moment, and then we cook them. We boil them and we steam them and we fry them and uh, all kinds of things. And maybe we add some spices and seasoning. And then that food has been treated. It's been cooked. Now, I know in many cases it tastes better or you can't even eat it unless you cook it. But the metaphor has limitations. But all I'm uh, pointing out is that um, before we did any of that cooking, it was just a raw vegetable. It was just a vegetable in its raw state. What we're interested in here is the body in its raw state before we cook it. And the cooking here has to do with all the ideas that we have about the body, which unless you have uh, a really a keen observer of yourself or have had some training, uh, is mixed in with ideas. Typically, when we learn how to be mindful, in the first phase, and this is in general, I don't know if it will apply to all of us. Step number one, when we're mindful, uh, our psychology is part of it. It isn't a clear mirror. Not really. No matter how much you hear these instructions and no matter how sincerely you would like to follow them, our psychology inevitably permeates what we see. So that we think we're being mindful, but that mindfulness, at least periodically, and I would say often, um, is entangled with our particular psychology, our likes and dislikes, our wounds and aspirations and loves and hates and all of it. It's mixed in with our attempt to see. Little by little, um, and we have moments where it's clear, where none of that is there. It's just true mindfulness. But then uh, we're so self-conscious about it. So we're getting closer to the raw, let's say it's the body that we're being mindful of. But there's a self-consciousness to the mindfulness. We're very self-conscious of being an observer, of being a meditator, of being a yogi. It's unavoidable. It's a skill that we're learning. We're all relatively new at it. And we want to do it properly. We want to excel at it. And so there's a, a sense of someone who's doing the observing. That uh, is on the way, but it's, we're not there yet. Because that self-consciousness, that separation of the observer, is preventing real intimacy of attention. Now, so that the next step, and some of you have had it, it comes spontaneously. Suddenly, uh, mindfulness seems so simple. You know, it's just effortless, and there everything is. And then we become, the mind uh, acknowledges that, and then we become self-conscious again. We're back, back in that one again. Uh, uh, the meditator. Really, it's the ego. The ego dressed up as a meditator. <laughs> so... Uh, the ego is still in there observing. But little by little, that gets weaker. So that uh, 
when there's real seeing, intimate contact with the body, and that includes the breath, there isn't this sense of separateness, of a separate observer, meditator, yogi, uh, me, whoever, whoever. What there is is just clear seeing. In fact, the really clear seeing can't happen as long as there is this self-consciousness. Now, that's why on the way, uh, personally I think it's probably inevitable for all of us, often when we think of being mindful, we use terms like detachment. And sometimes when people talk about mindfulness, it seems as if they're up on a mountain with binoculars looking at what they're looking at. Uh, what I'm suggesting, in other words, a, an understanding of mindfulness, um, it's not detachment. Uh, it's a kind of participative my, uh, attention or observation. That is, you're fully in the midst of what you're observing. You're not pulling back from it. Now, I understand that on the way, for example, fear comes up. And it is definitely helpful and a step in the right direction to feel that you've detached from it and can observe it a bit. And I think perhaps it's inevitable that that's where we have to start, no matter how much we hear about non-dual and all the rest of it. But it doesn't end there. Uh, Little by little, as our ability to pay attention develops, as we uh, develop the um, confidence that everything is workable, we're more and more able to approach what's happening with a bit more confidence and courage. And uh, little by little, the seeing becomes really clear. And there's nothing between us and what and the seeing. So this is a high standard. But the practice goes there. And it's not that you have to strive for it. It's just as you keep doing it, the capacity to see becomes clarified. I'm going into so much detail with the first one on the body because if I can present this with some degree of clarity, it's the same for all the others. So the intimacy with the body would be an unmediated, direct experience of the life of the body. In this first uh, set of, uh, of contemplations where we're uh, breathing in and breathing out. You've been working on the first four, whether you know it or not, for the first few days of the retreat. What we're doing is developing concentration. The mind is becoming more one-pointed, using the breathing to do that. As you do that, and a number of you have noticed it, hopefully all of you have, but you, know, you will if you haven't, uh, perhaps you've seen the breath uh, becomes more accessible. It's easier to pay attention relative to where you started. The quality of the breath starts to change. It's more refined. It's more satisfying to breathe. You feel some peace, some calm. Uh, the body, which is affected by the breathing, that is the breathing conditions the body. And so as the breath goes, so goes the body. As we more and more make the breathing conscious, uh, that has a tremendous impact on the body as well as the mind. But right now we're focusing on the body. Uh, and a number of you have reported how the, the sitting has become less painful, uh, that you felt you could sit for a much longer period of time, amazingly comfortable, 
let's say, from a few people who are not used to feeling any comfort while sitting. Okay. Uh, moreover, as that uh, develops, we begin to get to know the body. And where have you been attending to the breath? We haven't asked you, or maybe in some cases you've asked us, or some of you are probably at the nose, some of you are at the tummy, and some of you perhaps at the chest. A few of you have figured out your own idiosyncratic places that maybe no one else has attended to. But if it, if it works for you, that's fine. But what this ripens into, in one interpretation of what the Buddha is saying, in the third contemplation, he says, being fully sensitive to the body, the yogi breathes in. Being fully sensitive to the body, the yogi breathes out. Uh, at some point, quite naturally, the awareness will be of the whole breath. Don't force it. It's all right. And if you want to experiment with it, if you feel you're moving in that direction, it's all right. But even if you're focused on a, a point, a narrow point like at the nostrils, the day may come when you get very concentrated and then, and then you'll feel the aliveness of the breathing throughout the body. And there's a, a sense of sitting and breathing that's quite fulfilling. And there may also come a feeling that you're being breathed that it's really effortless, that you're just sitting there and you really have surrendered to the breathing. There's no you, it's just you're being breathed. The breathing's happening unencumbered. And of course, it's a wonderful feeling with implications. Uh, so in this first set of contemplations, uh, while breathing in and breathing out, we're getting to know the life of the body. Now, there are many benefits that come from this in addition to this, just a general sensitivity about your body, which can help you throughout life. Many of us have been cut off from our bodies or have negated them or have felt uh, the mind is really what's important. And so little by little, the body uh, gets noticed again. Remember, mindfulness is about understanding or, or insight meditation is about understanding. And the, the way to, supposing you want to understand a person, you have to spend time with them. You have to come in close. You have to really listen and look and little by little get to know them. And it's the same with this practice. Uh, we have to come in close and spend time with the body, getting to see its ways, which uh, becomes clearer if you, if you do it. And as you're following the breath, of course, you've gotten to know your body a little bit better while here. Another thing that can come about, for example, this is to get ahead a little bit. When you become, spend that much time getting to know the body, you may come to see, and this is from the Satipatthana Sutra, you may come to experience that the body is just a body. There is this body. What I'm trying to say, you don't experience it as my body. There's just a body sitting there and breathing. It's a wonderfully liberating feeling. That's what I meant by being breathed. This would really come uh, later on, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, this is really insight work. There are many other ways to come to this through contemplating death, through contemplating the parts of the body, through contemplating the elements. When you begin to see there is this body, it's not to demean the body, but uh, it's to get free of the attachment that we have to it as being me or mine, that we own the body, except in a conventional, legal way. Of course we do. But in a profound way, we don't own anything. 
We don't own the body. We don't own feelings. We don't own our own mind. It's all happening on its own. Okay. Uh, just to head off any misunderstandings, when you have that experience, this is not an ideology. This is something that's clearly seen, that there is this body uh, and there's a dropping, a dropping away of the attachment to it as being my body or being me. Um, It doesn't mean that we don't value the body. Uh, a, a useful metaphor, at least one for me, is from uh, Krishnamurti, who referred to the body as the relationship to the body as similar to uh, a cavalry soldier. That is, if you're in combat and you're riding a horse, you know that you're not your horse, but you better take very good care of that horse if you want to stay alive. It's the same with us. So saying we are not the body is not in some way a denigration or a denial of it. Uh, actually, you have a better chance of really taking good care of it. Uh, so much of the vanity and uh, self-preoccupation that's around the body can be eased and even drop away. Okay. Um, So we, we learn by breathing, and you've been doing this, breathing in and breathing out, we come to know the nature of the body. The next realm has to do with feelings, and it's the very same issue. The Buddha talks about feelings in the feelings. Feelings here mean um, the experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which comes about every time our sense doors make contact with the world through the five sense organs that are familiar to us, and the sixth in Buddhism is the mind. Every time there's a sound, I just heard that sound, it was neutral to me. Uh, A bird chirping might be pleasant. A truck very loudly driving by might be unpleasant. The same for smells, sights, and so forth. All day long, that's going on. And so that's another realm of attention. Now, In the first part of our practice, we were mainly interested in the breath, but of course, feelings kept breaking in. And a lot of what people were talking about when they were describing difficulty in being with the breath is the demands that feelings were making to be heard. They wanted some attention too. So uh, the feelings range from pleasant to unpleasant, varying degrees of intensity, mild to extremely intense, and neutral. The pleasant feelings tend to beget attachment and craving, craving and attachment. We tend to want to get and to hold on to what is pleasant. Much of our life is oriented towards gathering up as many pleasant feelings as you can. I'm sure part of why you came here was to get some pleasant feelings. I hope you got a few. (laughs) To bring back with you or at least to write in your notebook about your insights. And to get away from unpleasant feelings, when, when it, things are unpleasant, the tendency of mind is to push it away, to separate ourselves from it. Neutrality 
uh, often begets a kind of uh, spacing out, fantasizing. We don't even consider it to be real. So we want to get something more colorful in there. Again, here we can begin to see feelings as feelings. To get to know the wide range of feelings that a human being goes through. In the sutta, uh, a couple of the states that are mentioned, specific contemplations, one is rapture and something else is called peace. Piti and sukha, a kind of happiness, a very deep happiness that comes from a concentrated mind. When it's deep enough, it's called the jhanas in our tradition. Uh, some of you have tasted it. I didn't put a label on it when you told me about it. It's okay. If you haven't, uh, please don't turn it into suffering for yourself. It, because you heard, it's just a feeling. It comes and it goes. When it gets very, very deep, um, it can be very, very nourishing. It can give you immense confidence in the practice. And it can do some healing work for you. And it's not enlightenment. And we often suffer a lot when we taste it. It's a new kind of suffering. If you haven't tasted this new kind of happiness, you don't have this new kind of happiness to grasp onto. (laughs) But once you've tasted it, you have a new way to suffer. (laughs) A new and very high class way to suffer. But it's the same dynamic. It's no different. And so typically when we taste some of the joys that come from a concentrated mind, we want to be there forever. We don't want to go home. We want to dwell in it. But of course it doesn't last. It's a conditioned phenomena. The same with sukha, the peace, that kind of peace. But there a taste of something. It's giving you an inkling that this practice is for real. There, there's something quite profound at stake in our inner work. It's not just words and romantic uh, stories and legends and all the rest of it. There's something quite real. And also what you learn is that as you get more concentrated, there's an immense joy that's inside of us that has nothing to do with what the world thinks of us. It has nothing to do with what we think of us. It's there and can be tapped. And it's very, very helpful. It makes us less dependent on the world uh, for our satisfaction. If we don't realize how much is available inside, then we're constantly, desperately looking for some fulfillment outside in any of the many ways that we, can get, that we get it. Uh, that produces a lot of suffering in relationship, in regard to money, sex, power, food, and so forth. Once you begin to realize that there is wealth inside of you, uh, you start to become um, a little bit more relaxed. There's still many wonderful things in the world and they're to be enjoyed, but you no longer approach them as a desperate beggar, looking into people's eyes to see if you're all right, begging for some kind of confirmation. We all do it until we don't. We start to find out that... um, there is a certain fulfillment that's intrinsic to being a human being. Okay, so this feelings, we get to know feelings. Here, intimacy would be, uh, let's say if there's an unpleasant feeling, for there to just be an unpleasant feeling. Remember 
some of the suggestions about what mindfulness is. A clear mirror. No concepts. Some of the feelings are very unpleasant. Let's say when we're lonely. Uh, No one enjoys being lonely. It's a very painful feeling. And uh, when it comes up, uh, I would say it's difficult uh, to learn how to uh, shine that mirror on loneliness or on fear and all those other kindred kindred kinds of uh, unwelcome visitors to the mind. Uh, intimacy is very important, this direct, immediate experiencing of the body uncooked, so to speak, in the way in which I've been using it, of feelings uncooked, not the feelings which have been elaborated by all kinds of explanations and theories and so forth. And here, as I see it, there's a, a major re-education uh, that is part of us learning to practice as yogis. Uh, it's difficult for all of us uh, because of our conditioning. It goes something like this. What is being said, and I will say this now, the best thing you can do if you're feeling lonely is to become intimate with that feeling of loneliness. But that's the last thing we want to do. We want intimacy. We don't want intimacy with loneliness. We want intimacy with a person. <laughs> with something. We want intimacy. Uh, And yet, if we haven't dealt with all those factors that isolate us, uh, we keep failing because we have barriers self-imposed. We just hanker after something but are not aware of how we incapacitate ourselves and, and almost guarantee that we can't have what we want. The problem as I see it is this. The teachings are saying what will liberate you most of all is intimate, direct, unmediated perception of what's happening, whether it's the body, the breath, or any aspect of the mind. That is, the direct experience of loneliness or fear. But most of us have... We don't trust that. And we get much more excited about brilliant explanations of loneliness the existential theory of loneliness, the psychoanalytic theory of loneliness, the Buddha on loneliness, Kierkegaard on loneliness, Larry on loneliness. And you can sit just surrounded by your library with books on loneliness just being really lonely. Because, but we get excited. We'll get a a brilliant explanation. Uh, Some psychoanalyst just put it, yes, of course, that's exactly my situation. And it has a certain fulfillment which doesn't last. Because it appeals to our intellect. Uh, Temporarily, we feel good, the joy of having had that understanding, intellectual understanding. Or the the many escapes. We just do things to uh, keep from that unmediated, uh, intimate feeling of what we call loneliness by not only reading, but uh, eating, movies, telephone calls, uh, running after fame, uh, endless, right? We can become absorbed in all kinds of things to take our mind off ourselves. All of this energy that's used to avoid intimate experience of fear or of loneliness, or you plug in whichever one uh, you don't like, is a tremendous, tremendous expenditure of energy. And uh, we, co- we cope with our loneliness, we put up with it, 
we postpone doing anything about it. The last thing we want to do, it's as if we use wisdom only as a last resort. Okay, I've tried everything else. Let me try wisdom. We might have been reading these books for years, but we don't really trust what they're saying. You mean just that intimate contact, the isness of the loneliness? Yeah, the liberation comes from that. From that, uh, when there's no separation. And it's not thinking about it, it's not any of these other things. Now, the tremendous energy that typically goes into separating ourselves from it, if it's gathered together, and instead of being used to avoid the feeling of fear, loneliness, etc., if it's directed to the fear or to the loneliness, can you imagine what you have at your disposal? I mean, the attention is aflame. But it takes a while to get to that place. It's, and many factors go into it, and I don't know all of them. A few of them certainly is what we're doing, over and over and over and over, uh, practicing, 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 getting discouraged, getting optimistic, getting pessimistic, coming back, dropping out, trying again. Little by little, the capacity to attend, of course, improves. Little by little, we start to have more faith, more confidence, and more trust. And little by little, we edge our way towards these states, perhaps with the binoculars from a mountain at first. But the day comes, if you keep hanging out in this place, with people like us who keep saying the same things over and over, that little by little, you start to touch the fear, or the loneliness, or the anger, or whatever, uh, and you have the energy that is not being wasted on all the escapes, which don't work. If they work, none of us would need to be here. Because we all know how to do that. We're all escape artists. I speak with great confidence, even though I don't know you. But you are human. I do, I do know some of you, and I've been hearing more from some of you. Well, if, don't take it personally if it doesn't apply to you. Just my own personal delusion. From feelings, we move on to the mind itself. So we've been breathing with the body. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, we get to know the body. And as you know, in choiceless awareness, we'll go into that more next time, we include uh, the body and we include feelings. The choiceless awareness is sort of at the end. We're going through the different elements that make up the field of a human being, of consciousness. And in choiceless awareness, we're just open to it all. All I'm doing is uh, hinting at the different elements that make up the field of choiceless awareness. All along, if you do this method of anapanasati, you stay in touch with the breathing. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, uh, we get to know the body. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, we get to know feelings. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, we get to know the different mind states. Many of you are, some of you are from other practice traditions, non-Buddhist practice traditions. If you stay in this, uh, on this path, you'll hear the term kilesas before long. Maybe you've heard it already. Toxins, mental toxins, defilements, whatever you want, however you want to tra- translate it. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Primarily, uh, that's what's vital in this next um, 
foundation of mindfulness. When we're looking at the mind, from moment to moment, sometimes the mind is colored by wanting. It wants something, anything. But the key thing that, qual- that qualifies the, the moment is, is its wanting nature. Or it doesn't want. So it's craving or greedy, or it's averse, angry, aggressive. And uh, it's often confused, indecisive, in conflict, not sure of itself, ambivalent, tentative, but in a troubled way, chronic tentativeness. I think that Karada used that term, I'm not sure. Someone used it. Uh, But the mind is cloudy. I think we all know that. Forget my examples. We know what it feels like when the mind is cloudy. We know what it feels like when the mind is wanting something and when it's not wanting something. This is a particularly rich aspect. Here's where the self-knowledge aspect of the practice starts to really take on uh, some depth. Uh, We begin to know the mind with all these tendencies. And there are subtle qualities of mind that are related to these three main ones. They're children, you could say. And so in this one, as we breathe in and as we breathe out, we come to know what is in the mind at this moment. The mind that's full of wanting something. The mind that's full of not wanting something. The mind that's confused. And, in a sense, they're opposites. Uh, not, the, not their op- opposites, the absence of it. The mind that um, doesn't want, that's just perfectly content. Instead of aversion, there is no aversion, no separation. Perhaps there's love, loving kindness in the mind. And instead of confusion, there's clarity. So the mind is moving along these, these uh, dimensions all the time. So as we breathe in, we've covered the three foundations of mindfulness now, and I'm in one minute just going to uh, talk about the fourth because we'll come back to it. And, that, uh, and I'll leave you with a sense of this and choiceless awareness, and then the next time we'll uh, go into depth with it. And I think what I'll do is take up something like fear. I'm not sure yet. And we'll, we'll apply it and go through everything that's been said and uh, see if it helps us work with fear. And uh, The fourth is we've been breathing in with the body, we've been breathing in with feelings, we've been breathing in with the mind, and now we're breathing in with discernment. Mindfulness by itself is limited. Uh, in this tradition, the term satipanya is a very important one for you to know. Sati is mindfulness and panya is discernment or understanding or wisdom. Mindfulness by itself is limited. Mindfulness and discernment working together is what uproots everything and liberates us. The fourth is to look back on all those other things we've come by and and to see that each and every one of them, no matter what they were, no matter how bad they were, no matter how grandiose, no matter how fulfilling, each and every one of them arises and passes away and lacks self. So it's we're now in genuine vipassana, a full vipassana insight meditation. In choiceless awareness, what you're doing is you're sitting with your breathing and with the breath 
as you breathe in and as you breathe out, you're opening yourself up to the way it is in a given moment, just the way it is for you now. Uh, have you noticed that life, that you're a certain way right now? If you haven't, please notice it. Aren't you a certain way right now? It's this way for you right now. It is for me. Is it a certain way for you? You know, your mind, your body, it's this way. Okay. And so as we sit and breathe, we're just open. Now, what starts to present itself to tell its story are all these things that I mentioned. The body starts to say, pay attention to me. This is what's happening because it's full of life. It's energy in constant movement. Feelings are exploding all the time, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the mind is building up on all these things. A feeling comes in and it makes up a story about it, a story about itself. I used to be this, uh, now I'm that, and pretty soon I'll be better than any of that. And, uh, and all this is going on, sounds are coming in from the outside, maybe a smell comes in from the kitchen. We're just sitting with everything as we sit and breathe. So the training is not easy, but it's simple. It's training in unconditional surrender unconditional openness to, your, to yourself. Each one of us is learning how to unconditionally open to ourselves. Totally make friends with ourselves. Here's what I mean by unconditional. I'm going to use an analogy from a very, very different field and then uh, we'll all do, and we'll do some walking meditation. At the end of World War II, some of us have been around long enough uh, and we're old enough to follow it. It was an extraordinary day for me. Uh, just before the end, uh, the Germans surrendered. But their surrender was not unconditional. They had certain conditions which they gave to General Eisenhower and the Allied Command. They said, we'll surrender, but such and such and such and such. Eisenhower said, no way. They said, after all this devastation, you know, with all these millions of people dead, uh, you're going to give us conditions? He refused. And fortunately for everyone who was still alive by that point, the Germans finally surrendered unconditionally. They had no conditions. None. They just surrendered. It's comparable. And we're all, it's comparable in the sense that our war is going on. We're fighting with ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. And Dharma is about becoming our own best friend. And this particular practice is for adults. There's no quick way to it. It's not nine days to anything or three months to anything. It's a lifetime, at least, of practice. Okay, can we have just a few seconds of very high quality sitting? 